Chapter 29 of Hallworths. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Claire Reddick. Hallworths by Francis Hodgson Burnett. Chapter 29 Sararan. The next morning there was an uproar in the town. The strikers from Moulton and Marfoot no longer remained in the shade. They presented themselves openly to the community in their true characters. At first they lounged about in groups at the corners and before the alehouses, smoking, talking, gesticulating, or wearing sullen faces. But this negative state of affairs did not last long. By eight o'clock the discovery was made that something had happened in the night. In a score of prominent places, on walls and posts, there appeared to be papers upon which was written in a large, bold hand the following announcement. Ah, worse lads, or stand by him. The chaps that have ought to say against this, let them remember that to every man there's six barrels well loaded, and to Jem are worth twelve. Those that want their brass out of the Broxton bank, let them come and get it. Written signed by Jem Harworth. The first man who saw it swore aloud and ran to call others. Soon a select party stood before the place on which the card was posted, confronting it in different moods. Some were scientifically profane, some raged loudly, some were silent. One or two grinned. "'He stayed up all night to do that fair,' remarked one of these. "'He's getting a gizzard of his own, as I worth. He's done it with his own hands.' One gentleman neither grinned nor swore. His countenance fell with singular rapidity. This was Mr. Brierly, who had come up in the rear. He held in one hand a pewter pot which was half empty. He had caught it up in the heat of the moment from a table at which he had been sitting when the news came. "'What's in the barrels?' he inquired. The man he spoke to turned to him roughly. "'Powder,' he answered. "'And lead that damn fool.' Mr. Brierly looked at his mug regretfully. "'I thought,' he said, "'as happened it might have been beer.' Having reflected a moment, he was on the point of raising the mug to his lips when a thought struck him. He stopped short. "'What's he going to do with him?' he quavered. "'Ax him,' was the grim answer. "'Ax him, laddie, do not say. "'He's not—in manifest trepidation. "'He's not going to fire him off.' "'They'll fire him off if he comes across thee,' was the reply. "'Make sure of that, and I should not blame him neither.' Mr. Brierly reflected again for a few seconds, reflected deeply. Then he moved aside a little. "'I ha' not seen Sarah run since yesterday,' he said softly. "'Nor yet, Janey. Nor yet, the old missus. I must go and see him.' Haworth kept his word. The next day there was not a man who went to and from the works who could not have defended himself if he had been attacked. But no one was attacked. His course was one so unheard of, so unexpected, that it produced a shock. There was a lull in the movement, at least. The number of his enemies increased and were more violent, but they were forced to content themselves with violence of speech. Somehow, it scarcely seemed safe to use ordinary measures against Jem Haworth. He slept in his room at the works, 
and shared watches with the force he had on guard. He drove through the town boldly and carried a grim, alert face. He was here and there and everywhere, in the works going from room to room, at the bank ready for emergencies. When this year's over, he said, I'll give you chaps a spree you won't get over in a bit, by George. Those who presented themselves at the bank the morning the placards were to be seen got their money. By noon the number arriving diminished perceptibly. In a day or two, a few came back, and would have handed over their savings again willingly, but the bank refused to take them. "'Carry it to Manchester,' were Haworth's words. "'They'll take it there. I won't.' Those of his hands, who had deserted him, came out of their respective sprees in a week's time, with chop-fallen countenances. They had not gained anything, and were somehow not in great favour among the outside strikers. In their most pronounced moods, they had been neither useful nor ornamental to their party. They were not eloquent, nor even violent. They were simply idle vagabonds, who were no great loss to Haworth, and no great gain to his enemies. In their own families, they were in deep and dire disgrace, and loud were the ratings they received from their feminine relatives. The lot of Mr. Brierly was melancholy indeed. Among the malcontents, his portion was derision and contumely, at home he was received with bewailings and scathing severity. "'And that there's what you were up to, was it?' cried Mrs. Brierly, the day he found himself compelled by circumstances to reveal the true state of affairs. "'Thou's joined the strikers, as thy?' "'Ay, sir, around now, I've joined em, and we're going to go set things straight, bless you. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go bring the masters down a bit and, and get our dues.' That's what we're going to do, Syraven. It was dinner time, and in the yard and about the street at the front, the young members of the family disported themselves with vigor. Without Janie and the baby, who were in the house, there were ten of them. Mrs. Brierly went to the door and called them. Housed to frantic demonstrations of joy by the immediate prospect of dinner, they appeared in a body, tumbling over one another, shrieking, filling the room to overflowing. Generally, they were disposed of in relays, for convenience sake. It was some time since Mr. Brierly had beheld the whole array. He sat upright and stared at them. Mrs. Brierly sat down, confronting him. "'What are you going to do with them while you bring the masters down?' she inquired. Mr. Brierly regarded the assembly with naive bewilderment. A natural depression of spirit set in. "'They, uh... They seems a good many on em, Sarah Wren, he said with an air of meek protestation. They seem to have to have cumulated. There's twelve on em, answered Mrs. Brierly dryly, and they've all got in mouths as their sees, and their father's going to bring the messes down a bit. Twelve pairs of eyes solidly regarded their immediate progenitor, as if desirous of discovering his intentions. Mr. Brierly was embarrassed. Sarah-Ran, he faltered, send em out to play em. Send em out into the open air. It's good for them open air is. They'll set a man back. Mrs. Brierly burst into lamentations, covering her face with her apron and rocking to and fro. Aye, send em out in the air. Happen they'll fatten on it. It's all they'll get, poor children. Let em make the most on it. In these days, Haworth was more of a lion than ever. He might have dined in a state with a social potentate each day if he had been so minded. 
the bolder spirits visited him at the works, and would have had him talk the matter over, but he was in the humor for neither festivities nor talk. He knew what foundation his safety rested upon, and spent many a sleepless and feverish night. He was bitter enough, at heart, against those he had temporarily baffled. "'Wait till thou art out to the woods,' he said to French, when he was betrayed into expressing his sense of relief. Oddly enough, the feeling against French was disproportionately violent. He was regarded as an alien, and a usurper of the rights of others. There existed a large disgust for his gentle birth and breeding, and a sardonic contempt for his incapacity and lack of experience. He had no prestige of success and daring. He had not shown himself in the hour of danger. He took all and gave nothing. "'I should not be surprised,' said Miss French to Murdoch, "'if we have trouble yet.'" End of chapter 29